Scott Learwick is here from Boise Bible College. He's the um, vice president at, right now at this time of the college, and he's going to be the one speaking to us. And he takes care of fundraising there, different things, but also uh, Scott is from the Pacific Northwest. He's been in the ministry for about 20 years in different times and ways and was in Sandpoint, Idaho for three years preaching there and stuff. So he knows uh, our communities. He knows our lifestyle and stuff. And Scott, this doesn't intimidate you, does it, what you see around here? Uh, he, he fits right in with it. So uh, give him a big round of applause. We're happy to have him. Well, it is so good to be here today. This is actually not my first time here at Libby Christian. I was, uh, when I was in Sandpoint, we came over here for Thursday Night Pursuits a few times. And uh, can I just say, I love it. Uh, I talk about you guys all the time as I'm on the road, uh, as we are uh, engaging with churches and they're just looking at it going, how do we get men? I said, well, let me tell you a story. And, uh, and I tell Phil's story about when he first came here from what he shared with me a number of years ago. And, and people are encouraged by it. And there's some people, so there's some churches uh, that are trying to do something similar uh, to reach uh, men with the gospel. And so it is, uh, you guys are a testimony to what God can do. And, and I love it. And it is an honor to be here with you guys. As Dean said, my name is Scott Lerwick, and I'm the VP of Institutional Advancement at Boise Bible College. And what we do is that we serve churches across the, the greater Pacific Northwest. And, and I just want to ask you a question as we begin is this, is did you know that West the Rockies, that the church is in desperate need of more pastors? Uh, we have been doing some research at our institution over the last uh, year or so. One of the things we have found out is this, is that we have 22 churches uh, which is just uh, under 10% of them that do not have a lead pastor or a preaching minister. They, they don't have it. And what we do know is this, is that it's taken 18 to 24 months to get a new one in place. And that's not to say there aren't people willing, but churches are looking not for the willing, but the qualified. And, and it's really taking about that long. But, but as we've continued in our research, one of the things that we've found is this is that there are more churches who have a lead pastor over the age of 60 or 60 plus than we ever anticipated. Uh, right now, we currently know that there are 65 churches that have a lead uh, minister or preaching minister who is over the age of 60, 60 plus. The average age there is 67. And what we also know is this, is that most of those guys uh, intend to retire around the age of 71 to 72, which means this, in the next five to 10 years, we don't have 22 pulpits that we need to get filled uh, we actually have closer to 85 or 90, and I think that number is just going to get uh, more aggressive as we move on. In, in fact, our oldest preacher right now is 92. 92. And can I just tell you that we can be discouraged by this or we can have hope for it. And I really have hope for the future of the church. And, and Boise Bible College is, is someone who has come alongside the church. We don't see ourselves as the church. We see ourselves as the bridesmaid of the church. And really what our mission is, 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 is that we want to glorify God by equipping servant leaders who build up the church to advance the gospel worldwide. And everything that we do as an institution revolves around this, this mission, and it's not a new mission. It's not something that we've just been doing for the last couple of years and like, oh, there's a need. Let's change our mission uh, we've been around for about 77, 78 years, and from the beginning, that has been our focus. And can I just tell you, we're not changing our mission. 
Uh, we are still going to be on mission uh, to recruit people who are called by God to go into ministry. Uh, we're going to equip those uh, who come to our institution, and we're going to deploy them to go make a kingdom impact. And, and I just want to share with you how effective we are at actually doing this. Since 1990, our academic dean has been tracking some numbers, and one of the numbers he looks at is those who go and serve in the local church, how many of them at the five-year mark are still serving? And what we know is this, is that we have 90.2% of those who, who receive their bachelor's degree, they go serve the church, are still serving the church at the five-year mark. When I'm sitting in a, in a place where I don't show the slide right before I share the stat, I ask the question, what do you think the number is? So often what I get is this, well, I think it's about 20%. Occasionally I'll get someone around 50 or 60%, but rarely does someone anticipate that that number would be higher. But for us, it is at 90% of those who go serve the church, and even since 1990, those who have gone to serve the church and are still serving the church, our retention rate is at 76.3%. And so what this tells me is this, is that what we are doing is working. We are actually equipping those who want to go into ministry with a task of serving in ministry to where it's not this bait and switch. That's something we don't ever want to do as an institution, and, and I am thrilled that, that we can report such uh, numbers. But, but I want to bring us back to this map for a second of this need, and, and I just want to remind you that there is a need, and I just want to reiterate to you that as an institution, as a biblical higher ed school, we are doing something about it, and we're doing something about it in this way, and that we are an affordable option for anyone who is like Isaiah, who says, here I am, Lord, send me. We're an affordable option for someone to come and get equipped to go into ministry, and so I want to make an ask of you this morning, and it's really a simple ask. Would you join us in praying for one more student? One more student who senses the call of God on their life to go and serve in the located ministry, would you not just pray for that student? Would you also send that student to us? This is a picture right here of our high school preview conference we do every April. And in that sea of students, there are 17 students who had raised their hand and said, here I am, Lord, send me. And they were, uh, this was this past April, and their intention was to come in the fall, to come get equipped for ministry. And so we brought all those 17 students up, and then we had all the other students surround them, and we prayed over them. And can I just tell you, we need to do more of that. We, we need to pray for more leaders for the church. We're not praying for more students for Boise Bible College, like just so we can be successful. That's, that's not our heart. Our heart is we want to, to recruit, we want to equip, and we want to deploy them back into the church. We're just a piece of the puzzle. We're not the full puzzle ourselves. But, but I want to encourage you, pray for one more, but not just pray for one more. Would you send one more? We actually have one of your students down at our institution right now, Jacob Lee. And we're proud to have Jacob there. But we need more Jacob Lees. So, so as you identify, maybe you're praying for someone, would you not just pray for them? Would you go up to them? Would you encourage them? Would you put your hand on their shoulder and say, have you ever thought about ministry? Would you uh, encourage them if they are like, yeah, that's where I'm at? Even as a 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old, would you encourage them? I don't know that I would be standing here today if I didn't have that happen in my life. Someone who was encouraging me uh, along the way. So, so if you want to know more about the school, I'd love to chat with you. I'll be out in the lobby after the service. If Maybe you are that one like Isaiah who says, here I am, Lord, send me. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're interested in, 
in knowing more about what we are. Maybe you would consider being an investor uh, in us. That's how we keep our prices low, and I'd love to chat with you more about that. Or maybe you just have some other question about the college, but I'd love that opportunity. With that said, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our message for this morning. Lord God, we just thank you for today, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your bride, as the church. And God, as we come together and and as we open up your word and as we wrestle with it, I pray that through the power of your spirit that you would would do the heavy lifting in our souls. God, if there's things that we need to let go of, that you would lead us in that direction. God, if there's things that we need to be reaffirmed in, that we'd be reaffirmed in those areas. God, that we would trust you as you do in us what needs to happen. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, one of the activities that my family and I love to do is we love to go backpacking. We try every summer to get at least one trip in, but I'll tell you, before we ever hit the trail, the first thing I do is this, is I always buy a map. And not only do I buy a map, but, but I actually open it up and I, I begin to study it and I, and I look at it. And the main reason for it is this, is that honestly, I want to make sure I get to the destination we want to get to. Right? It's a map that that will help us see different things. So, for example, a couple of summers ago, we went to Eagle Cap Wilderness in northeast Oregon. If you've never been up in the Willow Mountains, I would highly encourage you to go check it out. Go go hunting up there. There's great hunting from what I've been told. It's amazing. But but we started out from the Tupan Trailhead, and if we went right instead of left, well, we'd go down a trail that wouldn't necessarily lead to where we want to go. And not only that, but if we he kept going to the right, there would be other places where the trail would split and we would end up in a place where, where we'd be further and further away from our intended target, which was actually a mere lake. And yet, even if I were on that, that trail that didn't lead to mere lake, I may think that I'm actually heading to where I want to go. Especially when you're in the tall trees and, and you got shrubs all around and you can't really see the mountain peaks and you're just walking, you're just going, you're thinking that I'm going in the right direction. And in the midst of all of this, you might actually think that you are where you should be, but you don't really realize how far you are from where you ought to be. Unless you have something to help guide you, namely, what would we call a map? Because what is it that a map does? I mean, obviously, it tells us the trail that we should be on. A map might help us identify where there could be good water, but there isn't always good water, as we know. It might even tell us a good spot where we might be able to spend the night if needed, but ultimately, it's going to show us our way to the destination. Now, we can look at a map and go, I don't need this. Maybe some of you have done that. You're like, oh, no, I got this down. I can just go out in the woods and I'll just... My gut tells me where to go. My intuition tells me to go. But let's be honest, people still get lost. You know, there's a reason we have search and rescue today. For people who think they don't need a map. In fact, some people get so lost that they actually don't even survive where they've gone. Now, now why do I share all this with you? I, I share it with you because the same is true in our spiritual lives especially as we are living in a non-Christian culture. Which means this, is that we, as Christians today, in the cultures in which we live in, we need to be walking by a map that helps lead us in the way in which we live our lives. And it's something, the map is something that we all call the Bible. 
And so the Apostle John, he actually spoke to us uh, in this need for us to, to what I'm going to describe as walking in the truth in a second letter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the letter of Second John. It's near the end of the Bible. But before we jump into it, I want to give us some important background. You see, this was a letter that was written between the, the years 85 and 95 AD. And, and that's important because it's We are no longer in the first generation of Christian leaders. We're now in the second generation. Most of the apostles, the ones who started the churches all over Asia Minor, which is actually to where he's writing to, uh, they they were started by the apostles, but now those guys have been martyred. They've been killed for their faith, and now we're in a season where where we don't have as many of those guys as we once did. So we're, we're now building upon their legacy, their instruction, but really it's the second generation of Christian leaders who, who are leading. And so, so as we're looking at this audience of Christians who are scattered all across this Roman Empire, specifically modern-day Turkey, eastern modern-day or western modern-day Turkey, we have all these what we might call house churches that are popping up. And we've got these leaders who are stepping into leadership positions. And, and here's the deal is that this gives a greater opportunity for varying theological positions to present themselves. And so what John is doing in this text is he's actually addressing the issue of cessationists, that is people who believe that Jesus was a great man, but he wasn't supreme Lord. So here's the main point of the text that we're going to look at here in a moment. It's that we need to keep strong in the true faith and that we need to maintain biblical priorities in light of those who want to bend it. So where does John go with us? The first thing he exhorts us to do is this, is that we need to abide in the truth. This is what he says in verses 1 through 3. He says, the elect to the elect lady and her children, excuse me, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and love. Now, as we have already identified John is writing not to the elect lady as if that were a specific person, but, but that's just a way to describe the broader church. So he's writing to, to the church in this region, not a specific person. But did you notice as I was reading this, how many times John used the word truth? He, he didn't use it once. He didn't even use it twice. It wasn't three times. He used the word truth four times in these three verses. And I think it's important for us to pause and go, what does he mean by the truth? Can I just say in context what I believe it is? It's actually the gospel. The gospel. Jesus says this in John 8, 31 and 32. Uh, He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy uh, verses, uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Maybe you've heard this one. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What sets Christians apart from the rest of the world is this truth. That Jesus is the only one who saves. No one else. Nothing else. 
It is Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. So, so let me give you this warning. Whenever we take the truth of the gospel and we change it, we are entering into very dangerous waters. Now, there's another word in this text that I think we need to pause and look at. So we've looked at truth, but there's also this word abide. And what this word abide means is this, is that we are to continue to be present in. So when you take truth and you take abide and you put them together, what do you get? You, you get this idea that, that the truth of the gospel needs to constantly be in us as well as through us. So, so ponder this with me for a moment, if you would. Do we as the Christian community, do we allow the truth of the gospel to be constantly in us? I think we could say yes, absolutely. Uh, of course, there, the, 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 there, there are stories that we could probably hear, and, and, and we can look across the room and go, yep, we do believe that. But, but let me change it a little bit if I can. As Christians, do we believe that the gospel can actually change us. Yeah. I and mean, we could probably point to different people and we could tell the stories of, oh, let me tell you about my, my Aunt Sue and let me tell you about my neighbor Bill and let me tell you about this person and that person. Yes, the gospel changes people. But let me ask it a little different if I can. How has the gospel changed you? We may look back on our lives and go, yeah, let me tell you about 40 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus when I was baptized. Man, my life, it's, it's been different since then. My life was, man, if you would have known me before Jesus and you knew me after Jesus, man, it's night and day difference. And that's good, but, but was, was it only just that one moment in time? How is your life different because of the gospel in the last year? How is your life different because of the gospel in the last month? What about the last week? If we believe that the gospel is the power to save, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, then our lives probably ought to be different. And if our lives aren't different, then maybe, just maybe, we have some soul-searching that we need to do. Maybe what we need to do is we need to spend time abiding in the truth of God's Word. The truth is definitely the gospel, don't get me wrong, but the truth is also the Word of God. We read this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul says all Scripture, that'd be from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, for the Word of God, again from Genesis to Revelation, is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I firmly believe that there is something that happens in our souls when we spend time abiding in the truth of God's Word. Allowing it just not to hit our minds and to say, yeah, I can tell you that, and I can tell you that, and I know that, but, but allowing it to penetrate our hearts as well. See, when we do this, 
It keeps us on the right path. It's what helps us get to the right destination. And I wonder, do, do we truly believe this? Hear me, it's not just having this intellectual assent to the truth. But it's also this, is we, we don't want to just abide, but we also need to walk in the truth. John goes on in verses 4 through 6 and says this. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to the commandments, that is, the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. See, we are commanded to walk in the truth, to walk in the truth, the Scriptures, I mean, Jesus tells us this clearly in John 14, 15, where he says this, if you love me, you will not keep my commandments. <laughs> yeah, don't we wish it said that? No, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, John wrote about this in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 16, he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. But listen to verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If we could strike any verse out of the Bible, wouldn't that be a convenient one? We can't. We know that. But man, that's a hard pill to swallow right there. If we say we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walking in the truth means that we are actually doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. And it's in this obedience that our knowledge of the truth, of the gospel, gets to meet the feet of those who desperately need to hear it. Because we can know it and trap it and keep it isolated, but listen, when we begin to walk in the truth, when we begin to live it out, those around us begin to hear and see the truth that is in our lives. And as we do it, listen, we, we, we don't do it in pride and arrogance, but we do it in humility and love. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3.14. He says, and above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we walk in the truth, we have to walk in love. And let's be honest for a moment. Walking in love with those around us is, is actually reflecting the life that Jesus lived. And that is the way that we are supposed to live. Now, why is it important that we need to, to not only abide in the truth, but also walk in the truth? It's for this reason. Because when we do, we will then have the awareness for when someone says something that's not quite right. When we abide in the truth, when we walk in the truth, all of a sudden we're going to have that, that sense within us that when we just left the trail going somewhere that we shouldn't be going. And when something's not quite right, you know what John tells us to do? He tells us this. We need to fiercely guard the truth. And this is what he says in verses 7 through 11. 
He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Verse 11, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is really interesting to me. Because right here in this text, what John is saying is that there are deceivers, not outside the church, but in the church. And he calls these deceivers the the Antichrist, those who oppose the word. And they often come in the form of of clever and novel teachings, but here's the thing, their goal isn't to progress in their understanding of the scriptures, It's to progress beyond the scriptures. And so Paul gives us two exhortations here. First, he says, don't be deceived yourselves. But then the second piece is this, is don't encourage those who are the deceivers. David Jackman, he's a commentator, writer, wrote this. He says, novelty is always deceptively attractive and false doctrine can thrive where it is promoted as progressive and advanced thinking. Hear me, please. If you are not walking and abiding in the truth, then you will not know when a claimed truth is not a truth at all. I have been serving the church for 20 years, 18 of those serving in the local church specifically as a a pastor. And can I just tell you that I've seen this firsthand? I've seen this attractive and novel thinking that has led both pastors, ministers, as well as elders astray. I, I can think of several situations where, where pastors have bought into this attractive and comfortable theology, which has ultimately caused great heartache for that local church. But I've also seen it at the elder level too. I, I've seen elders buy into to crazy ideas that when you, when you talk to them, you're like, what, what, what are you thinking? Like, how'd you get there? And And here's the thing, in both those cases is they oftentimes talk to you in a cyclical fashion, so you think you hear something, and and you ask a question, they answer it a different way, and you're like, I think I'm the one going crazy. And it's maddening. See, what John is writing to us isn't some fairy tale, but it's something that's still very much alive today. And if you ever serve in the local church, you're going to encounter it. You will. I promise you that. Now, John wraps up this letter rather abruptly with a final greeting. This is what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. You know, like any good father, any good pastor, John would rather not spend more time writing He'd rather sit down across from you, across the kitchen table, talking to you face to face. And what this tells us is this, is that there's still more things that John needs to address with this local leadership. There's more exhorting, there's more encouraging, there's more teaching that needs to happen. 
for this church, for these church leaders to continue to walk in the truth of God's word. And can I just say this is I think we need the same exhortation as well as encouragement today. I think we need to continue to abide in the truth of God's word. I really do believe that we need to walk in the truth. And I also really believe that we need to fiercely guard the truth. Now, you may not be in a church leadership position. You're like, man, I'm glad I'm not an elder. I'm glad I'm not a minister or a pastor. I'm glad I don't have that role because I don't ever want to have to deal with any of the things that I just talked about. But can I tell you that it doesn't matter what your leadership position is in the church, you are going to encounter this because it's not going to happen around a boardroom. It's going to happen around your living room. It's going to happen around your kitchen table. And who is it going to happen with? It's going to happen with this. It's going to happen with your kids and your grandkids who are listening to some really interesting theological positions that are not always true. And they're going to come home and they're going to say, hey, grandma and grandpa, I I got something to tell you. And and they're going to tell you something. You're going to go, holy smokes, where'd this come from? Or you may be a parent and and your kid goes off to college and they come home and they're like, man, did you know this? And you're sitting there going, that can't be true. And there's so many different ways in which our kids are being led astray to believe some really crazy doctrinal issues. And, And here's the thing that I've seen in all my years of ministry. I've seen parents and I've seen grandparents and I've seen students walk away from the truth of God's word for the sake of relationship. I've seen people say, God's word can't be true. Because if it were, then I could no longer have a relationship with my son, my daughter, my granddaughter, my grandson, my friend, my cousin, my nephew, you fill in the blank. Because the moment I stand on that, it's not me who's leaving them, but they're leaving me. Can I just tell you that that puts us in a really hard position? As Christians, that is a hard spot. And so let me exhort you with this. Don't fall for the trap. Don't get distracted by some clever theological position that truly does bend the truth of God's word. Be committed to walking the path that God calls us to. Don't try to take some shortcut. There aren't any other paths that lead to salvation. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And if something doesn't feel quite right when those conversations begin, don't buy in hook, line, and sinker. Go research it. Go find out why. And then dig into the truth. Even if living by that truth means that others are going to reject you. Even if it means, and I know this is not easy, if a son or a daughter says, I never want to talk to you again. Even if it means that that grandson, that granddaughter, say, write me out of your will. I don't care, Grandma and Grandpa. You see, us walking in the truth isn't hate towards them. It's love. Because what our goal is, our hope, our desire is this, is that they would choose to join us on the right path, the path that leads to eternal life that only comes through Jesus. 
in his truth. Church, we, we need to stand on the truth. We need to abide in the truth. We need to walk in the truth because our families desperately need to hear and see and know the truth that the gospel proclaims. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we just thank you for today. And as hard as a message like this very well could be for some of those sitting in this room, God, I pray that you would pour your grace out on us right now. God, if we have, maybe we are the ones who have adopted some, some idea, some novel teaching that actually stands contrary to your word, God, would you lead us in repenting of that and, and getting back in line with your truth? God, that your spirit would convict us of those things if that is in us. But God, maybe we have, for the sake of relationship, we have, we have walked away from your truth in order to maintain those relationships with our, with our loved ones. And God, if that is true, we know deep down that, that, that we've done that. God, again, I, I pray that through the power of your spirit that you, would, that you would lead us in repentance of that. And God, I pray for all of us that we would walk in your truth even when it's hard. God, when, when we have those loved ones who come to us and they, and they have these novel teachings and these things that sound maybe so good to our ears, but in our, in our hearts we know they're so wrong, God, I, I pray that you'd give us the courage to stand firm on your truth. God, I pray that through the power of your spirit that you'd give us the right things to say in those moments, the, the right questions. God, that you would give us the right responses that would be seasoned in truth and love as well as grace. Lord God, we, we don't pretend to think that any of this is easy. So God, help us because we do live in a messy world. And maybe the messy world has always been here, but, but man, it feels really messy today. So God, help us here and now in the situations that we find ourselves in. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.